0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing wellbeing information, inspiration and support for teachers, leaders and school staff around the world. My guest today is Andy Mello, Andy has over 30 years experience of teaching and leading in the state education system in England. Until December 2019, he was head teacher of the Outstanding Rated St. Nicholas CV e Primary School in Blackpool. He's now the National Wellbeing Director for the school's advisory service, leading their national wellbeing being partnership. He's a past president of the NAHT, the National Association of Head Teachers, and he is national leader of education, having worked in Blackpool schools for 20 years and also leads the Blackpool Teaching Schools Alliance. Andy, you're a busy man. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It sounds like um, quite a resume there, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) It does. It's (laughs) it's an excellent resume. So let's get started just talking about the concept of well-being being being proactive rather than reactive. I know that's a really important part of the work you do. Tell our listeners a bit more about that, if you would, Andy.
1: Yeah, I think um, there's an awful lot of uh, the role that I've come to and fairly new from headship, um, and one of the things that that, that drove me was a, a desire to make a difference for uh, lots of schools rather than just my own school. But as a head, I often struggled with the, the notion of how to build well-being in my own school. Um, and I read a book uh, when I first started the job by uh, a guy called Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, um, and he, in his book, uh, The Four Pillars of Well-being, talks about the extent to which, as a GP, he's no longer prescribing medicines uh, at his surgery in East Manchester, um, and his argument is that we are we're doing uh, probably more harm than good in terms of the um, the way that people are being medicated. So, that medication in many ways has been a prop for actually um, people. Not having a good standard of, of uh, healthy life and mm-hmm. and and he talks about um, good quality sleep, he talks about um, getting plenty of exercise, he talks about really good nutrition and also taking time for yourself to relax and and his argument is that um, if we get those things right as individuals, then we probably don't need a lot of the the medicines he's prescribing, a lot of the conditions he's seeing clear up by themselves and i know a number of people who've subscribed to, to his theory and actually have re-looked at their lifestyles and have been able to come off medicines prescribed medicines and um, because they've actually got a better lifestyle and it, it got me thinking about the extent to which maybe we have a sort of sticking plaster approach to uh, well-being in that uh, we tend to think in terms of well-being how can we meet people's well-being well um let's put an intervention in place Um, let's let's have uh, free tea and coffee in the staff room and i'm not i'm not decrying free tea and coffee i think it's a great thing but on its own as a standalone um it, it becomes a sort of random act of kindness in many ways and and for me whole school well-being and the culture that you develop in school is absolutely critical and free tea and coffee is only a part of that so i think what we need to do is Um, In schools, we're typified in many ways by interventions, uh, interventions for maths and English. And I think it's about time that we've probably looked at going back upstream and revisiting what it is that we think we can improve about the way we educate. Um, And part of that is looking at the, uh, the way that wellbeing presents for pupils as well as staff, because... We have a situation where we've got more children than we've ever known being referred for CAMS intervention. We've got the greatest number of um, teachers and school leaders who are wanting to leave the profession. I think NEHT recently did a survey that 47% of school leaders are looking at leaving the profession post-COVID. Oh, God. Which is now getting on for half. And at, at, at what point are we going to say... Actually the sticking plaster approach is no longer going to hold together a system that is fundamentally broken. Mm. Um, we have an attainment to cost culture um, and a mantra that we've even we've even verbalized around you know whatever it takes. well whatever it takes comes with a price. Um, and, and at the moment in terms of children's mental health, staff mental health, the, the number of people leaving the profession, that is a price that we can no longer afford to pay. And we need to go back upstream and create a better solution to wellbeing, where wellbeing sits alongside teaching and learning as the core business of what we do in schools. Only then can we start to address some of the, the epidemics, if you like, in terms of, of children and staff, mental health and wellbeing.
0: Wow. I, I couldn't agree more with every single thing you just said, Andy. Um, where to start? The, the four pillars. Let's just uh, back back a little bit then, in terms of um, a very holistic approach to well-being. Because when I was doing counsel, my counselor training many many years ago, and the the one of my teachers was saying to me, "What's the well said to our class? What's the most dangerous drug on the market?" And, you know, of course, everybody was talking about all the uh, illegal or illicit drugs. And he said, no, like common aspirin or over-the-counter pain medication because that numbs us to all of the signals that we're getting from our body to say, hang on a sec, you know, something has to change here. So um, taking the time and the attention and the care to do those four things of exercise, nutrition, sleep, and time time out to relax and walk walk the dog and you know how do we actually do that so looking at going upstream I love that notion how do we go upstream for people especially leaders but everybody in school who at the moment we're recording this in early December 2020 are exhausted what do we do right now to help
1: I think um, having worked in the profession uh, for for thirty years in a range of schools across the country and and in teaching and school leadership positions, um, we 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 have uh, developed this "whatever it takes" mentality, and 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 quite often sacrificed our own well being, our own family life, for improved outcomes for our schools. Because what we know is. That our schools and the way that they're judged and our well-being becomes damaged with uh, inspection if we don't get a favourable Ofsted inspection, Uh, and we're constantly told that as a profession that we've got to do what's right by the children, and that includes getting them over that line, whatever that line may be, at whatever phase of education in terms of exams and tests. And and what we've lost sight of in many ways is is the fact that there is a bigger picture here. and so I think, in some ways, we need to recalibrate the way that we understand education, um, and we need to understand. And, and Adrian's Bethu- Adrian Bethune's video says this perfectly in terms of actually, if we look after ourselves, our staff, and we look after the children's well-being, those results that 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 are are so key actually improve. Yeah because guess what if people are in a better place mentally and physically they'll perform better uh, and they'll learn better and they'll teach better Um, and all of that is absolutely key and i think what we've got is into a bit of a rut where we just think i need to work hard i need to work faster i need to work more Um, and we're at a point where none of that is going to have much more of an impact going forward in fact We're going to have a negative impact of that. We're going to see people falling over, and that's not that's not helpful. And for me, the mantra of putting your own oxygen mask on first, so that you can help others, is so appetite for for teachers and school leaders. You know, if we're not prepared to look after our own health and well being, we're not going to be in any fit state to be able to make those improvements. you know, I, I, I'm looking back to when, um, unfortunately, in 2013, my school got a judgement of requires improvement, um, and we had a real look at what it was that we were doing. And in many ways, we were doing the same things that um, lots of schools do, which is try and work more hours, try and work faster, more efficiently. And what we were doing is it was essentially making maybe a percentage, two percentage gains on, on results. But actually, people were fed up with their, their jobs. It wasn't the job they signed up for. Children were, were lectured in primary schools. And, and for me, that's not right either. So we recreated the way that we educate children. Um, and what that meant was, was actually giving children and teachers far more autonomy, teachers to teach, to be engineers of learning opportunities, but also for children to have a function when they come to school and be part of the learning process. And one of the, one of the, the really key moments for me when we were being inspected again in 2016 was uh, going into a year two class and, and hearing a, a six-year-old girl explain why 21 divided by five would have remainders and having the confidence to come to the front of the class and to be able to articulate that and justify her understanding in a really clear way, you know these are kids that previously might have, have been reluctant to come to the front and, and to share their learning like that but because we've given them autonomy because learning was theirs and because they were keen and confident to be able to justify their their learning and their understanding, we were giving them a real focus a real purpose with their learning and that word purpose for me is absolutely key because not only did it give the children a purpose, we also gave the staff their purpose back. Their, their purpose to help children to be better learners, but also educate the whole child. So this isn't about educating for tests, this is about educating for life. And giving those children those those skills of collaboration. We did a lot of Kagan structures work. You know, that the, the, the collaboration that comes through Kagan is, is, is phenomenal. Could I, um, could
0: I pause you there, Angie? For people, for people who don't know, um, in, in fact, I don't know, what is the Kagan's
1: um, the, the series of Kagan structures that uh, are techniques that can be used in school to get children to collaborate on learning. Mm-hmm. So um, they're essentially devices or tools that teachers will use in the classroom so that um, children can turn around from where they're sitting and have conversations for two or three minutes about their learning to justify their learning with another group um there's a there's a round robin which is one of the techniques if you've not seen kagan structures i would i would urge people to have a look at it because it's a really good tool to 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 get Well, it's a series of tools to get children to communicate with each other and to collaborate on learning um and it breaks away from this notion of learning being um individual it's chalk and talk it's the teacher filling the children with information and the best way for children to learn and for staff to teach is to actually learning through conversations, through discovery, through, and that isn't haphazard discovery. That's carefully uh, facilitated, engineered learning opportunities by the teacher. So we were giving the teachers a lot of their purpose back, which, you know, turned our, our school around. And in 2016, um, you know, f- through that and a whole range of other strategies. So, um, things like we gave the children tools like ABC for class discussions. Class discussions were typified previously by teacher asked a question, child answered the teacher. That's not a class discussion, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a conversation between two people. Um, and essentially, we taught them ABC, which is agree, build on, and challenge, which gave the children a vocabulary to own that conversation. So the children would say, yeah, we gave them a subject to talk on. This is this is the subject we're discussing. I want to agree with what you said, but I want to build on what you said. And so all of a sudden, the children are using this vocabulary to structure and to scaffold a conversation in the class where the teacher can actually sit back and think how skillfully they might want to direct that conversation by dropping bits and pieces in. But ultimately, it's led by the children, giving the children autonomy again. And you know there are there are so many children, particularly in some of the communities that I've worked in, for whom they have no control over their lives. They have no autonomy in their lives. Um, everything happens above their heads. So for us, giving children and teachers that level of autonomy just changed the game for us. And you know, in 2016, we were outstanding in every category. And all we'd done is fundamentally changed our approach to the way we educated, which is what I meant about going back upstream.
0: Mm. That's incredible. And congratulations on that. And I think I, I do a lot of leadership training in schools. And that's what we talk about a lot is how to shift the culture of the school. It's not just You know, it could be a very long tick box exercise in in getting to good. But if you want to get to outstanding, and I mean that in the, you know, in the national inspection way, but also in the way that you describe that people have autonomy, the staff and the pupils feel happy to be there. We have to shift the culture of the school away from that. Mentality, and there, t- can you talk more about that, Andy? How do you see some skillful ways in shifting a culture positively in a school?
1: Yeah, I, I think the giving giving staff freedom to to educate in in a way that um, you know we agree gives people autonomy helps them to develop the whole child. So you know, within all of the the, the learning opportunities, we were developing resilience. We we develop growth mindset. Um and, and a lot of these things, I have to hold my hand up and say, you know, these things were not things I sat down and planned. Um, mm-hmm. but it occurred to me that w- metaphorically, we got our kids in a place where we were we were saying that education is really important and it's really important to learn. But so many of the, the families that that we worked with. Um, education wasn't important it it hadn't led to you know a successful uh, fulfilling life or or career even Um, so it was it was about somehow recalibrating the way that we worked with these young people and 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 giving them a sense of learning being important but for them coming to that understanding themselves and owning that understanding so we had a we, we we would have a conversation with them about um you know the the way that they could they could have that autonomy within within their learning um and own the learning um and and be confident to be able to articulate what they've they've learned um and and what we did and, and i think one of the key things for us was to make sure that this was a whole school approach so in a, in a primary school, there's probably nothing worse or nothing more confusing for a learner if you track them over seven years to go from one classroom to the next, to the next, to the next. And every time you switch classrooms every year, something changes and something quite, you know, the culture in the classroom changes. Um, now, I'm not for one minute saying we don't lose the individuality of the teachers, because I think that's really important. And the individual passions of the teachers, I think, is really important. But there have to be some common themes that apply throughout the school. So one of the things that we um, we picked up and, and we we managed to get into every classroom, and this is partly one of the reasons why... Um, we 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 took a whole school approach on this. Is that we we took on the idea of James Nottingham's learning pit? And I don't know if you've if you've come across James Nottingham and his work, but James Nottingham's learning pit basically um, articulates what the learning process feels like. Because what we know is that learning isn't linear; it isn't a gradual upward curve. Mm. Uh, and he articulates the fact that you know you will come. To a point where you really, you really struggle. In fact, we were working with a, an educator from from Australia at one point, who had who coined the phrase "from strength to struggle," mm. because it's really important that um, our learners understand that you know learning is difficult from time to time, but actually it's worth the difficulty. Um, and essentially, what you do is you go into that pit yeah. where learning becomes really, really difficult. But if you persevere and you keep going. Um, and maybe use all sorts of devices and we, we gave the children uh, particular devices so we had the four B's in the classroom which was um, you can talk to a buddy you can use bits and bobs uh, and then the last one I can't remember the third one but the last one was talk to the boss which was a teacher <laughs> so these were all devices to try and make the children independent of the teacher try and make them persevere with learning because again We'd experienced a sense of, I can't do this, down tools, end of. So this was about trying to give them all of those skills to persevere. And then when you come out of it, because you've actually struggled with your learning, but you've actually worked it out, your understanding is better than if you'd been told the answer in the first place. So it's it's a really nice model. And it ties in with, um, Another thing, which is, is a big thing for me, which is we, in some schools, we still have a mentality and with, with some of our learners that making mistakes is the worst thing you can do. And and quite often, I'd, I would hear that from parents as well. I don't want my child making mistakes. I want them to get it right. Mm. Um, but for me, seeing a page of maths that is all ticked right tells me that the level of challenge isn't, isn't strong enough. So you know it's really important that our children from the earliest of ages from reception all the way through to year 6 understand that making mistakes is a critical part of learning and and you know this is you know this is embedded when you walk around school and you walk into reception and they've got a, a diagram of a tree on a display board and the children have written down what their best mistakes were because this is what they learned from it yeah. uh, and you know that message has got home and you know that is about Believe it or not, that's about well-being because that's putting young people in a position where making mistakes isn't high-pressured. It isn't the be-all and end-all. So mentally, we're actually putting them in a far better position to learn because they know that actually if they've made a mistake, they've got some learning out of that that they can take forward, which will make them a better learner. And
0: and I, I, you know, can I jump in there and pick up some pick up that point and relate that to staff as well? Because I, th- I see in many schools I go to a real culture of nervousness around making mistakes or defensiveness, deflecting, when, as you say, if there was a tree to show <laughs> all of the mistakes that we've all made, because, of course, we all make mistakes and that is how we learn and grow. How do we translate that for for the adults, for the staff in school?
1: Yeah, I, I think you... Um... You, you have to have that agreement with staff in school mm. that they will be given space to make honest mistakes. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think uh, one of the things that um, I experienced when I became head of the school in 2003 was a real reluctance for people to go out on a limb. Um, and I don't know why that was. I, I can't speak about the culture that was there before, but it was, it, it was clear that people were frightened of making mistakes and one of the things i said to people when i went there was you you are going to make mistakes because it's human to make mistakes but as long as those mistakes are honest mistakes because we're trying to make things better then we we learn and we we move on and there's going to be no repercussions around making those mistakes that that's a critical part of of life uh and we all make mistakes i mean i'm i'm sure we can all think of things that we've done mm-hmm. in our home life where you know we've made mistakes um, you know, energy providers we've gone with who we think, oh, crikey, I shouldn't <laughs> have gone with them. I should have gone with somebody else. But, um, you know, all of that is a part of life. And so, you know, we we had a, a, a critical moment um, when we got that requires improvement judgment. I sat with the staff in a staff meeting um, and I said, you know, there's two ways we can go with this. We can either fight it and, and say this isn't just. And, and if I'm totally honest with you in the cold light of day now all these years on, Um, I don't think it was fair. I don't think it was a fair judgment. But there is very little point in arguing it, because then you're denying the grade you've been given. And that puts you at a lower point for intervention as well. So um, basically, you pick up what you're given, um, and you move forward with it. And, you know, one of the most encouraging things I heard from the staff at that staff meeting was, and I I won't repeat the words, but they told me at the end of the staff meeting that we, they were going to create a category above outstanding. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it was two words. One began, one began with S and one began with H um, <laughs> and the second word was hot. Um, and essentially what, what they were they were saying was, we're actually not going to stand for this. We believe that what we're doing, and I, I genuinely believe we were on an upward curve at the time. We were just the framework at the time wouldn't give us credit for it. Um, so we were stuck with the grade we got, but the staff were keen to move things on. And and I, and I said to them and reiterated again, and we had a, a lovely inset day um, where we went away the night before, um, we had a meal together, we talked about how we were gonna make it right. Um, and then the following day, we had some really good input from a really good consultant about using some of these devices to be able to put it right. Um, and we built a really strong team ethos where people thought I'm a really important part of this st nicholas engine that's going to drive this school forward and um, you know and, it, and everybody bought into it everybody could see the extent to which it was going to make a really positive difference and uh, you know if you're going to have a whole school culture um then everybody has to buy into it everybody has to agree that they're going to buy into that and the, one of the reasons why we got outstanding um from the inspection team who are a really good team to be fair to them Um, And I'm not just saying that because we got outstanding, but they were saying there is consistency across the school, in every class, in every... Because we were two-form entry, it wasn't just in every year group, it was those two classes in every year group as well. And there's a common theme, there's a common thread that runs through all of those classes that makes such a difference to those children and those staff that help them to be the best they can be in terms of teaching and learning.
0: And yes, we start to draw some of these threads together because our, our half hour is already just about past. But I want to see in your role as a head teacher, but also now uh, as the director of wellbeing for the National Wellbeing Partnership, as a past president of the head teachers union. If you look at, draw some of these threads together for us and, and go back to one of your original points about how do we take all of this upstream? You know, how do we look at well-being from a bigger perspective? How do we take a step back from where we are now? As you said, 47% of leaders are looking to leave. I mean, that's horrifying if we think of how much wisdom, experience, knowledge is, is in that number of people who are considering leaving. So just to help us pull some of these threads together and any more practical action steps that anybody listening to this, because I think leadership starts from your first day in school, no matter what your role is, you're you're leading at some level. So what can people do right now to take a step back and improve things?
1: Okay, so I think the first the first thing to do is to acknowledge that the system is broken um, and that if we are to make incremental gains in attainment, which is how we're judged in schools, then uh, accept the fact that unless you're doing something different than just drilling children, Drilling children will get you a one percent, two percent, maybe three percent increase in in scores, but there's a there's collateral damage with that to the learners in terms of their mental health and well-being, but also in terms of staff and and our staff really coming into school to to do the job that they signed up for, uh, and and my argument would be no, I, I don't think so. I think for me, there's a key word in all of this, which is purpose. Um, and when I came into the profession 30 years ago, I came into the profession to make a difference to the lives of young people. Um, at that time, you know, as a young teacher, I didn't think about the staff, um, because you know, I wasn't thinking as a leader in the, in those days, but for me, it was about making a difference to the lives of, of children and young people. Uh, and as I become a, a senior leader, that's equally important for the staff that I work with as well. I want the staff to be happy and fulfilled in the job that they do, um, So I think if we acknowledge that the system is broken, then there has to be a better way of doing things. And now the next part of the thinking suggests that, well, if I veer away from what I've always been doing, that's given me a 1% or 2% incremental increase on my SAT scores, then potentially I'm losing all of that if I'm going to do something on well-being, because well-being is different, therefore um, I'm going to find myself distracted and actually, the next piece of thinking is to clearly understand that well-being and standards are not separate entities; they're inextricably linked. And if you do, if you if you get the well-being right, and by well-being I mean well-being in the broadest of senses, then if you get that right for staff and for pupils, you'll see that increme- incremental increase in your standards. And I think in Adrian's video, it talks about I mean the research talks about twenty up to twenty percent increase. Mm-hmm. In in uh, standards, so not only does well-being improve, but standards improve as well. So you're then asking yourself, "Well, well why am I not doing this?" Um, and 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 that's a really good question. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to um, it's it's maybe it breaks away from the mould that we've been put into as a profession. Um, you know that intervention mould. If we if we do this intervention, we'll get a little incremental increase here. Actually, all of that comes at a, at a cost. So um, there are things that schools are now doing across the country, schools that have said, actually, the system is broken and we need to do something different here. We need to go back upstream and think about how we educate children. Um, and that's not to say we go soft on standards because standards will improve. But there are, there are key schools, and I'm going to name some of them because I think they deserve a name check, but there's the likes of the Leo Trust, in Surrey, who are, uh, their trust is actually, I think they've got five schools who are taking on board the principles of positive education um, and, and driving that across their schools. Um, there's a primary school in Stockport called Mellor Primary School, incidentally, <laughs> um, as they would have it, and And their head there, Jim Nicholson, <coughs> he's, he's the uh, president of the uh, Northwest NHT. Um, and he's put something in place since uh, September, and they're already seeing major impacts mm. on on the children and the staff. <clears throat> and, and and basically, without going into too much detail around positive education, uh, positive education is based on on five principles, it, and and it's it, it's it's called PERMA. So it's about uh, engaging with positive emotions, engaging children in learning, and some of that might might hold some resonance with what I've been saying earlier. Uh, developing relationships, um, and the relationships in learning, as I was saying earlier, are really key. Um, developing meaning from learning, and that's so key. There's nothing worse than being having information drummed into you because it's good for you without understanding why. Uh, and celebrating accomplishments, and that's not just academic accomplishments as well. Um, And Geelong Grammar School in in Australia have been doing a lot of work on this. They've added a a sixth letter, which is H for health. Um, And there is so much information out there around positive education, um, but it seems to be scattered about. So um, I was talking to somebody up in uh, not far from Aberdeen who's, who's doing some of this work in her school, in her secondary school. So it isn't just primary. It can be secondary school as well. Um, and if anybody's interested in that, then we're actually looking at pulling all of this together um, and actually making this a lot more visible um, so that that schools can actually engage with this agenda. And you know I've got a number of presentations that I can I can send to people that will help them with staff meetings to be able to change the culture in school through positive education, which is based on positive psychology, which is Martin Seligman's piece of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you haven't had a look at it, I would urge you to have a look at it. It is a different way of educating children. But what you'll see is an improvement in well-being and an improvement in standards.
0: Andy, um, we'll... I'll point to your website in a moment, but that's a fantastic way to kind of wrap all of this up. Thank you. Um, I've been speaking with Andy Meller and the website is the schoolsadvice.co.uk. And if you follow that, you can go forward slash national hyphen wellbeing hyphen partnership. And that's where you can find all of that information. Is that right, Andy?
1: That's right. Yeah. If you if you have a look on there.
0: And you can connect with Andy on Twitter at Andy Meller64. And again, if there's if you've got any questions about anything that Andy and I've discussed today, uh, please reach out to him there or on LinkedIn, Andy Meller. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.